Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And this is a, a full disclosure podcast. Yep. <laughs> Um, this episode is actually sponsored by Focus Features. Uh, they have a new movie out titled Darkest Hour, which stars Gary Oldman as Winston Churchill. Facing the challenges of leadership in his early days as Prime Minister of Great Britain as World War II unfolded in Europe. One, if you just saw the ads, you might not know that's Gary Oldman. They did some really amazing makeup work on him. Two, just to give you a sense of what it's like, that movie is directed by Joe Wright, uh, who also directed Atonement, which came out a while back, and The Pride and Prejudice that came out in 2005. It's very much in that vein. Also, the 2012 Anna Karenina. Uh, so if you like his film, those films, you will probably like this one. Back when we did our episode on Christopher Lee, which was one of our, our Halloween classic horror actor biographies, we mention in the course of that show that Lee had been a part of Winston Churchill's secret military group known as the Secret Operations Executive and by the more colorful nickname, the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. And since then, doing an episode on the ministry has been on my list. So when we were approached by Focus Features for a sponsored episode, it was the first thing that we suggested. And luckily they were game because that meant that I had a good excuse to put in research time on it. There is, I should say, before we even go in for expectations management purposes, so much information on this topic that we're doing a two-parter. And even so, we are really only scratching the surface on this. So uh, just so you know what to expect, we're going to talk a little bit about how the group got its start, and then we're going to cover four of its missions, uh, and then we will discuss what happened to the SOE after the war. So um, there are so many more details and things to be gone into but even with two episodes, it, that is beyond our scope. So just know that there's always more. And I, we recommend some books at the end of the second episode. And of course, we always have our show notes if you want to learn more. So we'll hop right in. So writing for the publication Studies and Intelligence, J.R. Seeger summed up the role of the SOE in World War II this way, quote, the SOE and the OSS sent a mix of combat and academic specialists into this complex military and political environment with the objective of disrupting Nazi occupation, forcing the Germans to maintain large combat forces throughout the region, forces they should have transferred to more strategic locations. These operations are true adventure stories that rival any fiction written by Ian Fleming, Graham Greene, or Alistair MacLean. And as we talk, particularly about missions, you will probably think to yourself, if you have never heard about these before, gosh, that sounds like a thing I saw in a spy movie. <laughs> There's a reason for that, and it's because these stories did circulate and in some time, in some ways, inspired many of the spy movies that you have seen. In May of 1940, Germany, of course, attacked France in its quest to control Europe, defeated the French forces, and set up an occupation of the country. We've talked about that on the show before. And at this point, Winston Churchill and his colleagues knew that a different approach was really going to need to be taken when it came to battling the Nazis, because they were not having uh, much success with the, the traditional methods. And so a special secret organization was formed called the Special Operations Executive, also known as the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. Uh, 
And the agents of this organization were to be placed behind enemy lines where they would mount operations intended to destroy the infrastructure that supported Germany's war effort and sow the seeds of revolt among the occupied populations. Hugh Dalton was tapped to head the SOE on July 16th of 1940. And Dalton didn't have a military background, but he was given the order from Churchill himself to, quote, set Europe ablaze. Yeah, that line you'll often see used as as a tagline in in articles and books about this particular um, organization. So in the fall of 1940, the SOE moved into a a pretty low-key base of operations in Baker Street. Two flats normally rented to families became the secret headquarters. And from that location, Dalton's group began recruiting. And soon it had offices throughout Great Britain. And the locations for these installations were not offices in the sense that you would think of an office building, and they were not military-style compounds. They were homes and mansions with ample room inside and out for training exercises, from close-hand combat to train derailment. And the training that happened in these facilities was exactly what you might expect. It was the kind of things that you've probably seen in spy movies. So... Uh, how to escape handcuffs with everyday implements like pencil and a little bit of wire, how to apply disguises, how to subdue and even kill an enemy efficiently without a weapon. So the ministry quickly grew, establishing offices all throughout the European theater and recruiting people in every locality. Yeah, I should uh, also note that they also had locations that were just dedicated to things like technology development and communications, but they were all squirreled away in these these sort of innocuous-looking living places. (laughs) Volunteering for duty with this organization meant, in essence, that the people that were offering their services knew that they were very likely to be killed in the field. Uh, For example, wireless operators deployed by the SOE into occupied France had an average life expectancy of just six weeks. And even people that were hired into things like secretarial work back in Great Britain were told in no uncertain terms that that job could result in capture, torture, and execution by the Germans. But the knowledge that the Nazi regime had to be stopped outweighed people's concerns of personal safety. Once a potential agent was trained in combat and completed a parachute course, then they were ready for field operations. This doesn't sound like a lot of training, but it was rigorous and grueling, and by the time a recruit got through it, they were considered to be ready beyond all doubt. Yeah, they did an astonishing amount of training, especially because in many cases they were going into really unkind, just um, climate conditions. And it was apparently one of those things like, if you survive all this, then you are ready. So clearly it, it definitely pushed people's limits. And in addition to training agents, the SOE also supplied them with new technologies and some old school theatrical style tricks to aid them in their missions. So prop makers were hired to work in a North London shop concocting concealment devices. Molds of tree trunks were really popular uh, as camouflage devices so they could hide everything from radio equipment to explosives. This is one of the aspects of this that reminds me a little bit of the ghost army in their deceptions. Special clothing was made that would be fashionable and stylish, but could also conceal any number of tricks and disguised weapons. There was an entire department that was instituted just to create false documents, providing agents with new identities and any other papers that they might need on missions. 
In a house in Hertfordshire, clever minds worked tirelessly to create all manner of gadgets and assistive implements. A cigarette pistol that was loaded with a single shot was developed, as was a canoe that could actually drop underwater when it was needed, which was nicknamed Sleeping Beauty. Not everyone who knew about the SOE was a fan. MI6 evolved from a group that was contemporary with the SOE called the Secret Intelligence Service, or SIS. Sir Stuart Menzies, the head of the SIS, thought that the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare was amateur and dangerous. He felt like their covert approach could lead to all kinds of very real problems, both for themselves and for his own group. These were valid concerns because the SOE was working outside the normal chain of command that would keep other government entities aware of their movements. So there's a pretty high likelihood that their missions could directly interfere with his own agents that were working to collect intelligence to aid the war effort. Menzies was very blunt in his position that the SOE posed greater danger than the benefit it offered justified, so he lobbied against it. Yeah, and he was not the only one. Uh, There were certainly a lot of people that, one, a lot of people did not know about it for quite a while, and two, the people that did know about it, there was some, "Mm, that's not really the way we do things. (laughs) Um, So it met with some resistance right from the beginning. Uh, The SIS, as we said, was not the only detractor. The SOE often requisitioned aircraft from Bomber Command without having to give any details as to the planned use for those planes. And the ability for another branch to just swoop in and take planes really rankled the bombers, particularly because of concerns that their assets were being used in missions that potentially could be deemed unethical. Additionally, there was doubt that a small unit could be effective at all. It seemed really unrealistic to expect anything but bombers to stop the advance of Germany's Nazis. In March of 1941, there had been a failed SOE mission called Operation Savannah that was the first attempt to drop free French operatives into German-occupied France by a parachute. The objective was to ambush a Nazi bomber unit and kill as many pilots as possible. But that mission had to be aborted when it turned out that the information they were using to plan the mission was outdated. The pilots weren't going to be accessible to the operatives as had been expected. Yeah, it was one of those things where, like, their schedules had changed and they were being driven from place to place at a different in a different way than had originally been planned around. And so it was like, what do we do? And they just canceled the whole thing. But despite the failure of this much contested mission, uh, there had been objections as to the use of agents dressed as civilians to carry out such a task. Again, that falls in the that's not how we do it category. Uh, And there were certainly still internal pressures to close down the SOE. The group survived. And that was because Winston Churchill felt that this new clandestine branch of their anti-Nazi agenda was vital to turning the tide of war. Fortunately, just shy of a year into its existence, the SOE executed a mission that justified Churchill's unwavering support. So before we get into the details of that mission, we're going to pause for a quick sponsor break. By June of 1941, the Nazis that were occupying France had bases and supply chains up and running throughout the country. A U-boat base had been established in Bordeaux, which was one of six that the Nazis established in France over the course of the war. The SOE realized that the power station at Pesek was supplying power to the submarine base, as well as to several factories and chemical manufacturers in the area that had all been seized by Nazi troops. So, knock out the station and Germany's production in the area would grind to a halt. 
Bombers were considered for the task, but it was quickly determined that there was just too great a risk for to the civilian population for bombers to be used. So a plan, codenamed Operation Josephine B, was cooked up. It required a small group of operatives to parachute into Pesek, get to the transformer station by getting past a high fence, deal with guards, get into the main building, and then plant explosives in key areas to blast the plant. To execute this plan, the SOE turned to the Free French Forces, and three men volunteered. Those men were Sergeant Jean-Pierre Formont, Sub-Lieutenant Raymond Gabard, and Sub-Lieutenant André Varnier. The mission actually took some time to play out. The men were parachuted in on May 11th, and their reconnaissance made it clear that while the wall that was around the compound was lower than they thought it was, it was nine feet versus the 16 feet they'd anticipated, there were guards right inside of it, and there was a high-tension wire atop it. The men, through their own investigation and through contact with other French operatives, gained some additional information that would aid their mission, though. The guards knocked off just before midnight, and the main building was essentially unguarded after that. Yeah, there was some laziness that played to their benefit that comes up a few times. Um, when they moved to execute this mission, Formand was able to scale the wall, vault over that wire, and then make his way to the ground inside the fence, and then he just let his fellows in. And over the course of half an hour, the men pretty easily made their way into the station, planted their explosives, and made their getaway on bicycles. And as they pedaled away, eight perfectly timed explosions went off behind them, destroying the facility, and in turn, cutting power to the U-boat base and to all of the railways in the area that supplied the Nazi troops. The German war effort in the area was halted for weeks. That definitely sounds like a scene out of a movie. Pedaling sure. away on the bicycles while the things explode behind them. Yeah, it's one of those things where when you're reading accounts from people that were there, you realize how much of cinema has been built off of those firsthand accounts. Because they do talk about like, oh, we were pedaling madly and we could hear the bombs behind <laughs> us. And I turned to look briefly, but then I had to keep pedaling. And and it's like, oh, yes, this is all just like movies. And it's it's taken from the kinds of things that these men wrote about in their private journals. So this mission, unsurprisingly, given what we just described, was considered a, a success. But it also evidenced a problem that would repeat itself on subsequent missions. The Germans blamed the locals and then punished them with fines, imprisonment, and curfew in the case of the Pesek explosion. Retribution would be far harsher after a 1942 SOE operation in Czechoslovakia. So the German protector of Czechoslovakia, Er Reinhard Heydrich, was targeted for assassination. He had moved into a country estate north of Prague and had to travel the approximately 12 miles, it's about 19 kilometers, back and forth to the city to Prague Castle most days. And he did this without a security escort because he felt that employing one would make him look weak and afraid, and that was not the image he wanted to project of himself or Germany. So the most logical plan for an assassination was to strike Heydrich's Mercedes as it traveled between his home and Prague. The SOE worked closely with Czech intelligence services on this plan, beginning in October of 1941. The route was examined carefully, looking for the best location to attack the vehicle, ideally at a spot where the car would have to slow down, and which was distant enough from where the SS units were garrisoned that it offered the SOE's people the best possible likelihood of escape. 
Czech soldiers who had been stationed in exile in Great Britain were reviewed for potential participation, and out of 2,000 possible candidates, 12 were selected for training. And the soldiers did not know precisely what they were being selected for, but the mortal danger of the situation was communicated to them. After agreeing to the training, the men were put through a grueling six-week program at an SOE training center in Scotland. The training was intense. It pushed the men's physical, technical, and mental proficiency. They learned to make bombs, to rock climb, to survive all manner of conditions without any kind of aid. And then their psychological fitness and limits were constantly scrutinized. This mission came with a very high risk of capture, and the SOE leadership wanted to find the men who were the most capable of performing even in the incredibly high pressure and high risk situation that this mission was requiring. Yeah, there are a lot of talks about how they really tested their how much stress they could handle and how it's easy to perceive that as the trainers being sort of masochistic, but they really were trying to find exactly where their limit was so that they knew who could really have the best chance of executing and surviving the plan. Two Czech soldiers were eventually chosen, Josef Gabčík and Jan Kubíš, who emerged as the most suitable for the mission, which was codenamed Operation Anthropoid. And they were told in preparation that what they were training for was an assassination mission and that it was very likely that they would not survive, but both men agreed to the job. Gabčík acknowledging that such a risk was simply part of war, and Kubíš actually thanking command for selecting him. This mission was really a logistical challenge. There would only be a four to five second window during which the car was in range and the explosive needed to be one that was small enough to carry in a briefcase, powerful enough to pierce the armored Mercedes, and designed in such a way that the person deploying it would not also be killed. A hybrid grenade was designed, which was powerful, but light enough for an operative to throw it. The explosive designed by the SOE was so powerful that the two men were told they would have to take immediate cover after it was thrown because it was expected to throw a great deal of shrapnel. It has also been theorized that the bomb may have been laced with a biological agent known only as X, but this is something that the bomb's designers always denied. Yeah, it comes up in the German records as a German doctor said that he thought that something like that had happened as well, uh, but it's never been confirmed. And the men were dropped into Czechoslovakia on December 28th, 1941. And for a month, no one heard from them. It turned out that Gabčík had hurt his leg on the landing, and locals had taken care of the two men, moving them from safe house to safe house over the course of six weeks. And during that time, they also gathered information and refined their plan. So we're going to pause there while the men plan the completion of their mission so we can have one more quick sponsor break, and then we will jump back into the action. May 27th, 1942 was selected as the date to carry out the mission. So I want to point out that that's a five-month gap between when they were dropped and when they actually carried it out. And that was not uncommon. It wasn't like they would just drop people into occupied territory and they would quickly go do the thing and then come back. They usually were having to survive for a while because they had to get boots on the ground, see what was really going on, whether it confirmed the intelligence they had been given, and then refine the plan and make sure that they were ready for everything. So if these there are these cases where there are large gaps between their arrival and the actual fulfillment of the plan, and that is why. And while Gabčík and Kubish waited near the selected location on that May 27th day, 
An accomplice nearby watched the road, ready to signal with a mirror when Heydrich's car approached. And that morning, for some random reason, Heydrich had chosen to walk about the grounds of his estate with his family, and so his trip to Prague ran a good bit later than normal. Eventually, though, the two assassins saw the hand mirror flash signal. They prepared to execute on all the training and planning that they had done leading up to that moment. As the car approached and slowed down, Gabchik stepped into the road and fired at the car with a Sten submachine gun, which jammed. Kubish threw the explosive into the car, and it immediately detonated. He was hit with the shrapnel. Heydrich and his chauffeur, Johannes Klein, emerged from the vehicle firing weapons. The Czechoslovakian operatives returned fire, but then Heydrich collapsed. He had, in fact, been hit by shrapnel, and Klein's gun jammed. Kubish was able to get to a safe house on a bicycle. Gabchik was pursued by Klein, but he eventually managed to wound the Nazi and flee to a safe house himself. Initially, the men actually thought their mission had failed, because when they had last seen both of those men, they were alive. Heydrich was taken to a hospital and went immediately into surgery. He had a broken rib, a ruptured diaphragm, and a damaged spleen. He lived for eight days before he died of septicemia. Heydrich had been a high-ranking Nazi, and Hitler was infuriated by this assassination. A manhunt for the killers was mounted. House-to-house sweeps were carried out, but the two men had taken refuge in the catacombs of a cathedral. And while the SS hunted for Gabchik and Kubish, the locals paid a steep price for this attack. This time, it was far worse than the fallout after the power station had been destroyed. The small village of Litza was targeted on the grounds that it was believed to have some kind of connection to the attack. 199 men lived there, and all of them were executed. There were 195 women and 95 children, and they were all sent to concentration camps where most of them died in gas chambers. There was also a radio transmission that linked another village to the plot, and all of that village's inhabitants were executed by the SS. Gabchik and Kubish probably would have stayed in hiding and not been discovered, but they were eventually betrayed by a collaborator named Carol Kurta. The SS stormed the church where the men were hiding, and a two-hour firefight played out in which both Gabchik and Kubish were killed. Kubish had been captured injured but still alive, and the Germans actually took him to a hospital for treatment, hoping they could get information out of him, but he died very shortly after he was taken into custody. We're going to stop there. Uh, Not going to specifically call it a cliffhanger because we are going to talk about people literally climbing cliffs in the next chapter. The next time we're going to pick up with a raid on a Greek viaduct meant to help stop the Nazis' supply lines. Yeah, there's so much more to this story. Like I said, uh, even in two episodes, we're barely touching it. Um, There's so much stuff and it's amazing. So instead of usual listener mail today... Mm -hmm. I'm doing generalized listener pronunciation correction. My least favorite subject of all yeah, it subjects. It doesn't bother me. If that's my worst crime, I'm I'm okay. Like, I will always try to do my best, but I won't always get it right, and that's fine. Um, several people have written to comment that we pronounce the name, the French name, J-E-A-N-N-E. I'm not even going to say it wrong. I know, that's like that one French word I never get right. Um, there are others, but that one has always been like a thorn in my side. So uh, apologies, we'll keep working on it. I should point out that um, we have also gotten some corrections that are themselves incorrect. Well, and this is a thing that happens all the time with pronunciations. We yeah. will get... We will get emails thanking us 
for pronouncing a word correctly and emails criticizing us for pronouncing the exact same word incorrectly. Yeah, it's the, I mean, we've talked about this many times before. There are so many factors involved. One, people's ears hear words differently. Um, in addition to the subtle variances in pronunciation, we always do our best. We don't always get it right. I did have to laugh though when someone had emailed us and asked why we did not pronounce the R in Georges Millier's name, but we did pronounce the R in the Lumiere brothers' name. There is no R in Georges Millier. <laughs> so that's why I'm not, I don't mean to, to make fun of that person. It's just an example of how like your perception of what you hear and what things are is not always clean, I yeah. guess, for lack of a better word. Um, yeah. I mean, we all have done it. I just thought it was kind of entertaining on that particular example. We'll also <laughs> get emails sometimes that are like, the way that you pronounce the word is this. And then the phonetic pronunciation that they spell out, I'm like, okay, that is how we said it. So obviously how you pronounce <laughs> this, like how you pronounce the words, the letters P-O-U-R as poor is not the same as how we pronounce P-O-U-R as poor. Because yeah. that is the same thing that I had in my notes. Well, the beautiful thing to remember is like when we did an episode on crayons, which is how I say it, there was like a crazy bonfire of of madness on our social media because there are people that say it very differently from one another all of whom native English speakers. So. Yeah, and the people got really ugly with each other about it. And I was like, <laughs> y'all did. need to just calm down. Um, but to me, that's, you know, I mean, of course you want to get things right and not misconstrue meaning through mispronunciation. But, um, you know, that's kind of one of the wonders of of being a human is that we all do it a little different. Sometimes we find wrong, ways that are patently wrong and others, it's just a flourish. Yeah, anyway, we, that's we get the, eight or ten contradictory <laughs> emails about how to pronounce something. It is. Uh, that's the scoop. My apologies to people who maybe go crazy with those. It's it's fine. I'm sorry. I'll do my best. Uh, I understand there are certain little peccadillos that I am very nitpicky about that I have learned to just let go. But sometimes it's hard if it's a thing you love or care about. I understand. Anyway, if you would like to write to us and correct us in some way, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also visit us uh, across the spectrum of social media as Missed in History. That includes Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, Pinterest, Instagram. We're there hanging out. You can also visit our homepage, which is MissedInHistory.com. And there you will find every episode of the show that has ever existed with all of the pronunciations right and wrong and, and show notes for every episode that Tracy and I have worked on. So come and visit us at MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 